on questions. <laughs> I thought I'd stay with them tonight and the bit of a, the part of the sutra I wanted to offer for you to take away, I'll do tomorrow night. Yeah. Jitty will speak and then I, I'll say something. So to stay with the questions and it's the ones that are here are all about meeting the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, in the sphere of the Brahma Bihar, in the sphere of engagement, mm-hmm. how do we integrate our insight and understanding and bring it forth? And what does it mean? as practitioners to engage in our families, in our community. Yeah. So these are important things to contemplate and to inquire into. So they say they're all in that sphere, so they may join up in a, to a coherent whole, or they may not. But I thought to start with the well, one of the later questions that arrived to start with because when, when I was asked about it the, a sutta came to mind and it's a short sutta of the Buddha I thought well it's so lovely to hear the texts that maybe I start with that so and when I was bringing it up across and thinking, hmm, but of course there's a way to listen to these things, isn't there? No. Many of you I know have been really working, working, wrong word, um, experiencing the quality of relaxing, resting back, actually letting experience come to you to arise and be there and fall away and be with this experience. So when we're when we're actually with things, the mind is not forward and grasping. Yeah. It's not trying to get anything. So as we listen to teachings like this that I'll read, can we listen from that place? Mm. Where the words, these teachings come to us, they touch what they touch, and 
You'll see what happens. Yeah. Because, you know, there's a whole, you know, there are a lot of dense teachings that the Buddha gave. So, how not to contract around them? So, this is Sutta 58 from the Majjhima, and it was a Sutta, it's called To Prince Abhaya. So, thus have I heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living in Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, the squirrel sanctuary. Then Prince Abhaya went to Nagantha Nataputta and after paying homage to him, sat down at one side. Thereupon Nagantha Nataputta said to him, Come, Prince, refute the recluse Gotama's doctrine and a good report of you will spread about to this effect. Prince Abhaya has refuted the doctrine of the recluse Gotama, who is powerful and mighty. But how shall such, how shall I refute this doctrine? Come, Prince, go to the recluse Gotama and say, Venerable Sir, would the Tathagata utter speech that would be unwelcome and disagreeable to others? If the recluse Gotama, on being asked, thus answers, the Tathagata Prince would utter speech that would be unwelcome and disagreeable to others, then say to him, then, Venerable Sir, what is the difference between you and an ordinary person? For an ordinary person also would utter speech that would be unwelcome and disagreeable to others. But if the recluse Gautama on being asked thus answers, the Tathagata Prince would not utter speech that would be unwelcome and disagreeable to others, then say to him, Then, Venerable Sir, why have you declared of Devadatta? Devadatta is destined for states of deprivation. Devadatta is destined for hell. Devadatta will remain in hell for an eon. Devadatta is incorrigible. Devadatta was angry and displeased with that speech of yours. <laughs> <laughs> If you don't know, David Arthur was uh, tried to cause a whole schism and destroy the Sangha and on numerous occasions tries to kill the Buddha. <laughs> you know, rolls rocks down hills, you know, does all kinds, you know, kinds of things. So and at a certain point the Buddha reprimands him. So, when a recluse Gautama is posed with this two-horned question by you, he will not be able either to throw it up or to gulp it down. <laughs> if an iron spike was struck in a man's throat, he would not be able to either throw it up or gulp it down. So, too, Prince, when a recluse Gautama is posed this two-horned question, he will not be able to throw it up or gulp it down. So the Prince of Ayah says, Yes, Venerable Sir. So 
some, one of the questions about um, mudita, altruistic joy, sympathetic joy. You know, Gantanata Putta is demonstrating opposite quality. <laughs> you know, jealousy, envy. Yeah. So, so they set off, he sets off. He rises from a seat and after paying homage to the Gantanata Putta, keeping on his right, he goes to see the Blessed One. After paying homage to the Blessed One, he sat down at one side, looked at the sun and thought, it is too late today to refute the Blessed One's doctrine. <laughs> I shall refute the Blessed One's doctrine tomorrow. <laughs> so then he said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One with three others consent to accept tomorrow's meal from me. And the Blessed One consented in silence. Then knowing that the Blessed One had consented, Prince Abaya rose from his seat and after paying homage to him, keeping him on his right, he departed. Then when the night had ended, it being morning, the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, he went to Prince Abaya's house and sat down on the seat made ready. Then with his own hands, Prince Abaya served and satisfied the Blessed One with various kinds of good food. When the Blessed One had eaten and had withdrawn his hand from the bowl, Prince Abaya took a low seat and sat down at one side and said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, would Atatagata utter speech which was unwelcome and disagreeable to others? There is no one-sided answer to that, Prince. Then, Venerable Sir, the Naganthas have lost in this. Why do you say this, Prince? Why do you say, then, Venerable Sir, the Naganthas have lost in this? So Prince Abaya reported to the Blessed One his entire conversation with the Nagantha Nataputta. Now, on that occasion, a young, tender infant was lying prone on Prince Abaya's lap. Then the Blessed One said to Prince Abaya, What do you think, Prince? If while you or your nurse were attending to him, the child would put a stick or a pebble in his mouth, what would you do to him? Venerable Sir, I would take it out. If I could not take it out at once, I would take his head in my left hand and crooking a finger of my right hand, I would take it out even if it meant drawing blood. Why is that? Because I have compassion for the child. So too, Prince, such speech as the Tathagata knows to be untrue, incorrect and unbeneficial, which is also unwelcome and disagreeable to others, such speech the Tathagata does not utter. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be true and correct, but unbeneficial, which is also unwelcome and disagreeable to others, such speech the Tathagata does not utter. 
Such speech is at a target to knows to be true, correct and beneficial, but which is unwelcome and disagreeable to others. The Tathagata knows the time to use such speech. Such speech as the Tathagata knows be untrue, incorrect and unbeneficial, but which is welcome and agreeable to others. Such speech the Tathagata does not utter. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be true and correct, but unbeneficial, and which is welcome and agreeable to others. Such speech the Tathagata does not utter. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be true, correct and beneficial, which is welcome and agreeable to others. The Tathagata knows the time to use such speech. Why is that? Because the Tathagata has compassion for beings. So we can draw that out in a minute, but I'll continue. Venerable Sir, when learned nobles, learned Brahmins, learned householders, learned recluses, after formulating a question, then go to the Blessed One and pose it, has there already been in the Blessed One's mind a thought? If they come to me and ask me this, I shall answer thus. Or does that answer occur to the Tathagata on the spot? As to that prince, I shall ask you a question in return. Answer it as you choose. What do you think, Prince? Are you skilled in the parts of a chariot? Yes, Venerable Sir, I am. What do you think, Prince? When people come to you and ask, what is the name of this part of the chariot? Has there already been in your mind the thought, if they come to ask me thus, I shall answer them thus? Or does that answer occur to you on the spot? Venerable Sir, I am well known as a charioteer, skilled in the parts of a chariot. All the parts of a chariot are well known to me. That answer will occur to me on the spot. So too, Prince, when learned nobles, learned Brahmins, learned householders, learned recluses, after formulating a question, then come to the Tathagata and pose it. The answer occurs to the Tathagata on the spot. Why is that? That element of things has been fully penetrated by the Tathagata, through the full penetration of which the answer occurs to the Tathagata on the spot. When this was said, Prince Abaya said, Magnificent Sir, Magnificent Venerable Sir, the Blessed One has made the Dharma clear in many ways. From today let the Blessed One remember me as a lay follower who has gone to him for refuge for life. <laughs> so, um, word on the street is, Nagata Nathaputta was very upset. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So this whole quality in terms of, you know, what is right speech and the Buddha discusses it in many different ways, but the way I find really helpful for myself is this in this 
know, little reflection of when does a Buddha speak? And it's this ability, you know, to be able to know what is true and correct and what is beneficial. So for most of us that can be an inquiry. No, to to know we're speaking out of compassion. Mm. So in other other suttas, this is one of the things you check on. No, has the heart is the heart speaking from a place of loving kindness? And mm. um, that's a huge work in itself. Sometimes, no, when when things have got a bit hot to to really be able to settle that. Let the resentment, the frustration, whatever be felt, do what they need to do and let the heart come into a place of clarity. So what we say is true as far as our understanding goes. And of course we're not all-knowing, all-seeing, like Haputha. So, it's a slightly different case. Our idea of what the truth is, is so partial. So, we speak knowing that. What is true and correct. Hmm. We, as far as we know, we speak from that place, but so often it's partial and that's why more often as you know if you're trying to choose something out for somebody ideally it's an inquiry where we find out how somebody else sees it how we see it because so often the, the trouble, the affliction comes from simple misunderstanding had very different ideas of what happened. Mm. Or I did something thinking I was being kind and helpful, but it felt like something entirely different. Yeah, so it's just because we're not all knowing or seeing, yeah. we can't you know, we can't say, well it was true, it was correct, it was beneficial. Yeah. There is this Lightness with which we have to hold those things. So the sense that the you know, the one of the primary determinants is is it beneficial? And I know for myself that can stop me saying a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Do I just need to be with it? Actually, right now, I don't think it will be. It's not. And this other quality, which I guess we naturally go into, it's just not the right time. Mm. Is it timely? Is it the right time? I have a good idea about something. 
do I go knock, knock, knock on the side of Carol's head and say, hey, how about we do this next time? She organised a day long for us down in Portland. Is now the time that I start you know, chewing that out? Of course not. You know, some things are clear. No, that's not what this time is about, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's not respectful. But in a, a day or so, before we all part ways, of course we need to. Yeah? It makes sense. So it's about me being restrained. And on last Tuesday, I'm not coming up with a whole lot of good ideas. You know, just when my mind is starting to open and relax and this creative spurt comes up and I'm designing covers and I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting other people caught up in it, you know. And those simple harmless things on some level. But is it timely? Is it the right time? You know? I've got something I need to say. I look at the other person. They've just arrived from wherever they've come. They're harried, they're tired. They've had a thousand things they've been dealing with. It's now the time to spring something upon them. You know? So it's the sense of, of just being attuned. Why are we speaking? Is this the kindest time? And sometimes, you know, as you all know, there is no other time. You know? Here we are. You know, you know, one of us is going this way, one of us is going that way. You know, you know in your day-to-day life and you're catching each other at some kind of handover but there's one's come home and one's going out and you know, it may be a slightly harried moment and we have to be aware of that. We do the best we can with the conditions but we're conscious with it. Can it wait? So that is a helpful question when the, the movement is not to keep solidifying, complicating, hurting, any of this stuff. It's about relaxing, opening, coming out of the compulsions of the mind in terms of ourselves and in terms of how we relate to other people. So... This, this sense of a Buddha you know, who, who knows you know, when's the right time. Just, just wait sometimes. Wait you know, till the heart is ready. You know, some suttas he talks about teaching people and about trying, a man arriving wanting teaching but the man is hungry. And so the first thing to be attended to is for the person to be fed. Because the Buddha says, you cannot hear the Dharma when you are hungry. The the other needs are paramount. So this sense of care, respect, determinant. Know that a Buddha models for us, and then we take these these ways of reflecting 
and use them with the lived conditions of our lives as somebody who doesn't have vision of everything who only sees a little part who only has their own sense of what is true who cannot look and see into somebody's heart to know actually whether this is the perfect moment but comes from an intention of kindness. So a Buddha speaks even things that are hard to hear from this place, out of compassion. And certainly in the monastery it was a you know, it was really clear that it was unkind not to let people know of their effect on, in certain areas. Because you know, if you've ever been in such a place and for the last two months every time you've done something repeatedly and then you know, months down the track someone says to you, do you know you're not supposed to do that? <laughs> and everybody's seen you doing it and no one's been kind enough to tell you. Mm-hmm. Oh, why didn't somebody sit tell me on the first day? Mm-hmm. How was I supposed to know? Yeah, so it, it can just be a, 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 a kindness to each other, isn't it? Just to you know, provide feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Funny word. <laughs> I'm in the, you know, I'm doing some online teaching work. In fact, a number of us are involved in a college where Eliza you know, was, was working or, or leading on the campus over in Melbourne. And I've got a unit in integration, which is really funny in this retreat, but right now everybody is having to give feedback to each other. <laughs> this is all, not my design, but it's all in there, you know, and just the sense of how helpful it can be. You know, how, how, what a growth point it can be. You know, and the, within the unit there's a sense of supporting people to understand the skills that, that, of that. What makes feedback helpful? What makes it a real kindness? When we're trying to learn and someone else says, hey, did you notice how beautifully you do this? Or have you noticed you haven't haven't looked in the corners? Or whatever it is, you know? Not random things, but sense of it, it's just part of our world. I remember years back, Arjun Sachito showing me this thing about one of those rubric things. If someone gets feedback, I can't remember the time, but it's like some remarkable amount of time a person for the first time can get this out with feedback, like it's a minute or something. 
without feedback in a kind of random universe, it's like years or some <laughs> phenomenal amount of time. Wow. Just the, uh, how accelerated the learning is if we, if we get response, if we get mirroring, if we get a sense of this is working, that's not working. Yeah. So, so the sense of the Buddha, you know, compassionately providing us, hey, you're leaning a bit to the left, honey. <laughs> <laughs> no, just that, that sense. So, so this sense of relationship, you know, we we integrate on all kinds of levels. We integrate our willingness to be present, to let our mind settle, clear, come out of hindrances, so that when we speak or engage, we can engage from as much clarity and kindness as we are capable of. And I don't know about yourselves, but I remember you know, early on in the monastery, just having that sense of one of the real um, incentives to wake up to do the work was t- to be as harmless as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So that I'm not coming out of a place of ignorance, or a place of harm, a place of confusion. Yeah. And I've heard many of you others speak in the same way that we really come from this quality of let us live skillful, kind, generous lives. This fundamental quality of Buddhism, ethics, Buddhism, harmlessness. Hurting anything, a thought, a feeling, a person, a fly. So, part of what the integration of all this time is, is we get a chance to see. We see, in a way, some of our, we sit residue of some of our ways of relating and we get a chance to just let it it settle and start to meet some of the disturbance and get freed up. So that the qualities of compassion and kindness are more accessible. (coughs) Certainly that's my experience. So, staying in this, this realm of heart cultivation, the, there's a question about what um, sympathetic joy is. What is it? I kind of skipped over it this morning, mm-hmm. the other day, but the, the sense of more detail, appreciative joy, this essential heart quality, 
can be a bit mystifying, can't it? What is it? What was it like? And as I was saying, as I was reading this out, it's far enemy what it isn't. What it is actually medicine for is the kind of envy and jealousy that we see demonstrated at the beginning of the sutra I read. A kind of competitiveness. But, uh, and some, some people even talk of it's near, it's near enemy being about comparing. way of looking at someone else or something. The other way the near enemy is talked about is where, in a sense, we identify or subsume someone else's good fortune as part of our own sense of identity. So they're on my team. So that's where my joy comes from. But it's not, it doesn't have this uh, purity. And so it's about being freed up enough to notice what is going on, to notice the good fortune of another, the well-being of another, and feel a sense of gladness, feel a sense of happiness. So sometimes it's termed happiness or gladness at the good fortune of others in and ourself. So at a retreat like this, it's easy to cultivate. We sit here and all kinds of people have been doing all kinds of things to support and look after us. So it's easy to attune to that. A thousand little kindnesses. Yeah. So seeing the, the good fortune, the loveliness of people's kindness and attuning to it. Judy's been turning the lights up and down. Mm. Just quietly there on the edges. Mm. And you can you can notice these things or drink in the the attention and the noticing and the care that means someone's thought, well Rather than the person who is actually on life duty, having to come all across from here all the time to turn them up and down, the person sitting beside them simply does it. Doesn't think, well, it ain't my job. <laughs> so, so then we, we can feel, oh, isn't that lovely? No, we drink it in. So it's it's about being sensitive, sensitizing to loveliness. And it's a really important quality to balance compassion. We seem to be needed together because in compassion way we're we're feeling the suffering. And you know, it can get overbalanced into grief and misery. The heart gets overwhelmed. So to keep the balance, we're, we're also seeing 
the beauty, the loveliness. So, an example was, you know, I was saying this morning that when I was working in Melbourne, I saw so many people dying. And it was, it's a funny thing, but I used to come home and say, what really kind of mystifies me is so often, you know, there are the people with no family, but where people have family, just how loved they are. I mean, all kinds of people, everybody that has family, it's just, it's just like this ongoing miracle. Maybe it says something about me, <laughs> but but just a kind of this miracle all over the world, all kinds of people love each other. So the being able in the midst of seeing the loss and the distress and the pain to feel this miracle going on. It's a painful miracle. Yeah. The people there, yeah. there's separation from the love going on. But the miracle of love, yeah. people doing most extraordinary things. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I could really see for the whole palliative team, what heart it gave. Mm. This, this kind of, it is, I don't know how you experience, but it's kind of a human miracle. Mm. So we attune and, and it brings tremendous joy. Mm. People do do dastardly things, I know. Most people are taking care of other people as best as they can. So it helps keep our hearts within this quality of sympathetic, altruistic joy, gladness. So there's much we could say, but time is passing, just a little sense, you know, it, it, it's something we can attune to when we do the sharing of blessings, a sense of gratitude, appreciation for the Buddha, the teachers, for you know, on, on, mother, father, relatives, the sun, the moon, Lord of Death. <laughs> you know, all these parts of the world. So. So, and I kind of touched on them this morning, but felt I'd kind of glided past them. This whole, these questions about wholesome attachment 
Mm-hmm. How do we work with uh, path cultivation and the sense of attachment, experience of attachment? Mm-hmm. And what starts out, someone else talks about um, kind of a wholesome interest or that begins to evolve into unwholesome desire or obsession. So we you know, both are talking about this this place of balance, aren't they? That we are we are incarnate and in relationship and we need to honour that and how to do it from a place that's not um, afflicted. As I was saying this morning, the sense of when we're cultivating the Brahma Vipha, how we know if we've fallen into the often near enemies, is the these heart qualities free the heart from dukkha. Where when they fall into unwholesomeness, we can feel the dukkha. So what can be tricky is the use of this word attachment. In there's it can be so I mean it has so many different ways it's used and it can be conflated with a number of different things. So there's the kind of attachment that's grasping and clinging and wanting, controlling, manipulating, resisting. And then there's the being in right relationship, being connected, which we can, you know, in the models, the psychotherapeutic models, is called attachment too. This natural sense of connection with the people to whom we're in relationship with. So, in my understanding, that's not not trying to smash or break or destroy any of that. We're trying to get it so that those the the elements of that which are afflicted are freed up from. That the experience of love, care, connection is imbued with wholesomeness and with the four boundless qualities. Mm. I mean the Buddha, no mother caring for her child. Mm. It's a it's a, a, a wow, full-on acknowledgement of the relationship. And lots of the suttas, particularly in the Vinaya, acknowledge this. How, how do we be in families, in relationship, in ways that are wholesome, that, that help deepen and further the practice? Mm. 
Once again, it's not about a view. It's about coming into presence and connection. How much easier my practice is when I have good friends. We we really, you know, what the Buddha said, you know, his two chief disciples, Sariputta and Mongolana, died before him. And when one of the attendants came with Sariputta's bowl and robe and gave them to the Buddha, he looked, you know, it says, he looked out across the assembly, you know, so the whole Sangha was gathered and he said, this great assembly is empty. So when I hear that, I hear a man who loved two people, who are no longer present. I don't know what others might say, but that's my sense. Here, the two people he had cherished, spent a lot of time with. It's not like someone came with a bowl and robe and he said, oh, just put them in the car. (laughs) So, for for me, it's helpful just to reflect on the Buddha was speaking to our human experience not trying to deny it, but asking, saying, well, within this human experience, is there a way to be free, to be able to manifest these heart qualities, freed from affliction, freed from greed, freed from hatred? So, to me, that's what our practice is about. So someone asks about the cultivation of equanimity, particularly in the face of all the distractions. Yeah. Just the way it is worded, and I'm sure it wasn't intended when it's initially read, it read like, especially in the face of all the multiple distractions on the retreat. But, but that's not, on rereading, that's not what the note is saying. <laughs> oh dear, you're so distracted. <laughs> but more the sense of here are we cultivating, you know, got this opportunity to cultivate if, you know, this quality of equanimity so that we can face the multitude of distractions in our life. So my sense is, and you know, I think Jitty concurs, that all the practice we do is cultivating this. The, the ability to be present here and now, feeling the body, feeling the breath, knowing what is happening, not asking it to be different, 
This is equanimity. Mm. Being willing to be with the way things are. You know, and that to me is what moment in, moment out, on the cushion, walking along, that is what has been cultivated. Equanimity in the sense of the highest kind of love. This love that is prepared to be present with whatever, doing whatever. Life doing itself. So I don't know if that answers that question, but just that sense of a whole practice is about steadying, coming into the fullness of body and mind, to have the capacity to meet experience. And equanimity is used also as a the fruiting in jhana practice and samadhi practice, and so the sense of what it's like, what happens in the mind when the hindrances fall away. The mind settles and opens. It's no longer being shaken around by wanting this, not wanting that, wishing it was different. The whole stuff of yeah. And so we can have moments, certainly I'm sure we've had moments sitting out in the trees, sitting out by the lake, just feeling the heart relaxing, not wanting anything more. This is equanimity. And our body knows it. Not arguing with anything. Come out of contention. So what my encouragement for myself is to keep a bodily reference to that so that I know what it feels like to be here and everything is all right. It's enough for tonight. That's this process of the inward quality that we can feel in meditation, and then the the sense of the expression of that in our relationship with life. Mm, you can trip along. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.